My name is Diana Riza. Pronouns are she, her, they. And I'm Shante Hanks. Welcome to the Diversity in Higher Education podcast. The Diversity in Higher Education podcast is recorded out of Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven, and it was developed to bridge the gap between academia and the community on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm here with our host, Dr. Diana Riza, the university's first chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. Today, we have Professor Frank Harris III joining us. Professor Harris is a journalism professor at Southern Connecticut State University, a former columnist for the Hartford Current and a documentary filmmaker. Okay, so without further ado, Professor Frank Harris. Thank you, Shante. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, When you're talking journalists right now, their integrity and um, the quality of their work is being questioned, right? So my question for you is going to be, do you believe, you know, this characterization of certain news outlets, it's fake news, from the let's say the leader of our nation and members of his cabinet has adversely affected the public's view of journalists and journalism. Well, first of all, I don't uh, I don't like the term fake news, and if it's coming coming from President Donald Trump, then you know I don't I I, I question everything the president says because his capacity for the truth is really suspect, and that's being kind. Uh, first of all, I mean, how, what is fake news? I mean, and this is actually a discussion that I have in one of my classes. And um, the power, we, we have a, a class, I teach a first woman class, Journalism 101, the Media, Freedom, and Power. And we talk about issues, including this one. Um, and we define what is fake news? Well, you know, it, it would be something that's deliber- deliberately false um, and created to manipulate people. Well, you know, the, the, the mainstream news media uh, and even most other news media, they're not putting out news to be intentionally false. Um, the fake news definition that people commonly use and which hurts me when I hear people utter fake news is the news that Donald Trump does not like. The news that criticizes him for really telling the truth. And what we have is really a psychological term of projection where Everything that Donald Trump accuses everybody else of is really his own self. <laughs> you know, he, he calls everybody else fake news. And we, we have, and I don't want to get into the, just a, a lambasting of President Donald Trump, but um, he is the ultimate person who conveys fake information, false information, deliberately false. So to me, um, the, the, the news media journalists, have no benefit in deliberately putting out false information. I don't. I have not met a journalist who would deliberately put out a false story. Now, that doesn't mean that there are people. There are not people who do not put out false information. Um, we have had journalists who have pretended to be somewhere else, or just journalists who where they were not. Journalists who said that they interviewed somebody who did not exist. I've had students on a, on a couple occasions who um, said they interviewed someone, and they, when I did a fact check, they did not. And they were called 
to the mat on it. Um, they were dismissed either from the class or even from the university or put on probation or something. Personally, I, I, the truth, I have it on my uh, Twitter site, truth is the most important thing. And if you are not able to tell the truth, then you should not be in this business. So my view of fake news is that it does not apply to the average journalist. Um, you know, can I, you know, I, I, you, I can probably keep going on, but well, Diane wants to get in here. I, I got to, <laughs> uh, let, let, you know, I had, uh, my niece the other day, uh, text me and they, the family started to talk about, and I, you know, I'm not trying to be political here, but was really, uh, uh, emphasizing that Biden and, um, the current leadership, democratic leadership was um, had this ring of uh, an island that simulated was similar to what Epstein had uh, had created um, when he was doing his thing, <laughs> and uh, to to say that Kamala Harris and Joe Biden have this island. <laughs> similar to Epstein and that you got to be careful about those leaders and what they're saying and what's what their campaign is about and what it isn't and when I heard when I saw that I there, I was in disbelief that my family would believe this so going back to fake news do you think um, that I feel it with my relatives but do you feel that there's an increase and how we are positioning these outlets, these in social media, as real news. I mean, people are buying into mm -hmm. what I would think is the most exaggerated reality. Mm -hmm. But people are buying into this. And there are these news outlets that people see as very authentic and are is not fake it's it's real data and and they're well, so help me help me understand i got i got i need information for my niece because i love her dearly but this one put me well, over I the edge I, I agree with you i agree with you and i think frank i i see what i think i understand your lens and perspective and I'm really objective here, um, and that's why I thought it was important to start off by, you know, explaining my affinity for journalism, true journalism. I grew up, you know, watching news stations where before the news would start, they would say winner of the Edward R. Morrow Award, you know. And I knew even as a child that that meant something, you know. This is this is real investigative journalism. This is, you know, ethical. Uh, and then I learned someone that I watched for decades, Brian Williams. He lied, you know, so it's, it's not just about this current administration saying fake news. I think it's bigger than that. Um, I think social media plays a part. Um, and I wonder, are journalists, um, do they all still feel that it's their job to bring us the news, to, in, to do investigative journalism and to confirm their sources? Or is it more about the most likes and followers on social media and, and you know, getting your information out first with total disregard for, for facts? Because I, I find that oftentimes it's not accurate and it's really about what's sensational. To Diane's point, this salacious story 
about uh, Vice President Biden, and they've even they even talked about it yesterday after the uh, the debate. You know, the commentary. I and I tend to to because I want to stay objective, and I like to hear all perspectives. So I will admit the main channel I watch is CNN, but I'll jump around and I'll watch Fox, I'll watch NBC because we also know that there are biases that exist in you know this television journalism, and I wonder. Should we well, still call everyone journalists? Should we come well, up with other thing. titles? Well, here's the thing that many people don't quite understand. There is news where people are going out to report stories and they get the opinion and the words of the people that they're interviewing. Or they look at physical sources, such as documents and statistics. Um, and then there are those who have shows that are talk shows where people are are basically sharing their perspective or getting uh, other people's views on something. Now, if you look at CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News in the later hours, or even sometimes in the day, you have a host coming on there and they have a panel. That's not a news show. That's basically, I mean, they may have facts and stuff on there, but they're sharing their opinion, their yeah. perspective, and that's when I wrote my column for the Hartford Court and Haven Register and everywhere else that I wrote for, that's my opinion. You expect it for me to share my thoughts and position. If I'm going out to report on a story, I'm not supposed to share my opinion. So the news that comes on at 6.30 here in the East and, and else, you know, the national news or the local news that comes on a little bit earlier, they're reporting stories. The other stuff where you have the, the host coming on, that's, I wouldn't compare that okay. to the same as news. By the same token, they are supposed to produce factual information. Now, that's one set of news. A lot of what you're hearing is propaganda, where people are basically trying to deliberately put false information out there, such as the thing about, you know, whenever it was with Hillary Clinton and supposedly have her having um, a pedophile ring in this comet, uh, whatever, restaurant or wherever it was in D.C., and uh -huh. somebody believed it and came and shot the place up. Somebody put that out there. And it could be the, it could be the Russians, it could be whatever. And this is not necessarily new. I mean, people put out stuff about civil rights leaders and all kinds of people to try to get people to get them to go away from following them or believing them. Um, just that now, as you mentioned, there's social media where it's able to be put out there. Anybody can put any information out there. Do you consider anyone that says that they're a journalist that, that they should abide by those same um, old school code of ethics? Or, or do you see that many of them are using, I think they use the word journalist um, really freely? Well, everybody, I mean, you know, everybody who calls themselves a journalist is not necessarily a journalist. There are people who can just um, basically go out and put information out there. That doesn't necessarily make someone a journalist. Journalists are accountable to people, either to the readers or the, or the public or to the editors. All right. If, you, if you're not, and that's usually if you're part of an established uh, organization. Every journalist who works for a news organization is accountable to that organization to make sure they put out factual information. If they don't, they're at risk at losing their job. 
And, you know, I like to think, I mean, although the newspapers and the media are shrinking, um, you know, just, you know, for a, a variety of reasons, there's still the idea that you have to put out information that is accurate and true. And if you don't, there's a price to pay. I want to take that to, if we can move it to higher ed. And, and, I, and I'm, ask, I'm asking, uh, as we talk about truth and educators being responsible to truth, in higher education, that's what we do. Faculty, staff, our jobs is to create better understanding, debate the truth, be critical of the truth, and yet we have students that are on social media that have created a truth that seems real, very real to them, and yet, don't want to call it fake news, but they are reaching out and, you know, if you look at the glass half full or half empty, they tend to go to their, and I'm going to speak to the diversity piece, Um, there's perception that universities and colleges are not speaking truth to anti-racism. They're not speaking truth to being true to the social justice movement. They're not being true to equity, to reducing equity. That's what many of our students are telling us. And yet, higher ed, this is what we're about. How do we... How? How do we perfect or do we have a code of ethics, as journalists do, to be true to, to the work we're doing, and yet students are saying we're not? You know, how, there's a disconnect that, that, that I'm seeing um, at colleges and universities, too, that we have lost our, you know, the, the championing truth. How, 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 how are we doing that in a responsible way? And students are saying we're not. Well, you, give, example, give me an example of how what what a student is saying that we're not. I just want to make sure I'm clear on what you mean by, um, you know, perhaps not being truthful, not being honest with faculty members or, or, or addressing, you know, give me an example. So on the one hand, we might say as an institution and institutions, whether it's Southern or other places, that we believe in equity and anti-oppressive work. That's what we're about. And yet students will say that racism is, permeates in institutions. Bias, discrimination permeates in our classrooms, outside of our classrooms. That the institutions are not stepping up. That they're not true to what they say they want to do. That's the, the perception. That's what they're saying. That students feel that we are more racist than, than what we say, that, that we haven't gotten better. We're getting worse. And so, well, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's, it, it, I, I remember, I, I'm not sure how to answer that because, yes, racism is a part of everything, no matter how much. Um, I think it's a matter of degrees of racism to, to some sense. I'm not saying that everybody is racist or whatever, but in the society in which we live in, it's hard for, you know, I, I'm going to say this, but 
when you when you when you grow up in a society, I'm, I'm speaking from a white perspective now, even though I'm black. But I, I, and I've talked about this in one of the classes that I teach called Race in the News, and I talk about how if you are growing up in a society where its majority group is white, and all you see are primarily images of white people doing positive things, and not all the images. But you see black people um, maybe not represented well, or Hispanics not represented well, or Asians or uh, Muslims represented in a different way, um, in a, not a positive light. And it's hard not to have a, a certain perspective about that. And, um, and it's not going to necessarily be good. And it's going to carry over um, to, into your adult life unless you have some kind of experiences where you can interact with people of a different group and learn more about them and realize that they are just as much um, people as you are with likes and dislikes, with good and bad and so on. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, I, I you know, again, I, I, I there's an example of, um, you know, I'm trying to think of an example that occurred a year or a couple years ago where a professor used the N-word in the classroom. Yes. Um, he used Actually, it just N-word. happened again recently. Okay. This semester. And, Not and, here. And I'm at, okay. But here's, here's the thing. Um, and, and I've done a lot of research on the N-word and, and, and so on and so on. And the incident that this particular incident that happened was where the professor who was white would have the students come in and bring in a song like the beginning of the class, an icebreaker kind of thing. And they would sing a song, whatever, whatever. And he would sing it back to him or, or, or do something. I don't know what it was. So anyway, somebody brought in a rap song and the professor either finished it and he used the N word. Okay. And he got in trouble for that and so on. And my, I had mixed feelings about it. I don't like the N-word. I don't use it unless I'm talking about it and describing it in research or, or an example. And I've used the N-word in the classroom to talk about the N-word. Um, and my feeling was that, was that inappropriate? I would not have put myself in a position to use it in that context, whatever. But should no professor, should a professor who's white never or, or non-black ever use the word? Uh, depends on the context. One of my colleagues, when we're talking about racial slurs in the First Amendment and, and freedom of expression, uh, we've talked about that word and we, we've used it to say the word that we've talked about and so on. Does that make someone a racist for using it in that context? I don't think so. And so there are times when, I mean, I don't know if that's the, the best example of, of, of somebody being, uh, you know, racist or, or, or not or, or whatever. But my feeling is that if we're going to be truly honest, I'd be upset at the black student bringing in a record with music on it, with the N-word on it and playing it and thinking it's OK. I think they're um, both so wrong, um, honestly. Um, because I find it interesting. I, I can't think of another word that is so emotionally charging and polarizing than that word. Um, and there may be others for other marginalized groups, but no one feels so compelled to try to figure out a way to fold it into the academic, academic curriculum like that word. I don't understand that. Like, I, I just looked because I remembered there was a recent incident um, 
and I don't consider that an accident, but it was a recent incident that a professor in Pennsylvania used the N-word to describe when he was young. That's what they called Brazil nuts. They were called N-word toes. Uh, why yeah. Why yeah. did you yeah. feel compelled to in do- this climate especially right. to do that? And I find that it, even in academia, in higher education, folks will find a way to try to justify, I don't know if they want to get a charge out of students or what have you. This professor is on paid leave right now, um, so I don't think it, it got what he wanted, or maybe it did. But I just, <laughs> I just find it astonishing that in 2020, um, we have to still think about this. Um, we're dealing with what we're, we're saying is a, a double pandemic, right? Um, in 2020, uh, the uh, year of vision and what have you. And it, it is, just not in the way that people thought it would be. Um, and, and both you and Diane hit on two points that I, I wanted to, to talk about and, and kind of give you my perspective and, and ask yours on it. So we know that Southern is looking at going in the direction of a social justice curriculum, Correct. Um, And so I'm thinking, you know, we know that the the subjects and the topics should include poverty, civil rights, climate change, uh, corporate power structures, education, health care, LGBTQ equality, mass incarceration, uh, police, police powers, uh, defunding um, or not, racism, sexism, inequality, just numerous pressing issues of the day that should be folded in such a curriculum, right? And an academic curriculum that speaks to this will lend that political analysis and historical context and the social science research that's necessary. You know, I'm a doctoral student myself and and critical race theory is not a new catchphrase for me, but it definitely is now. It's something that you hear about quite often. So with that said, I think journalism should also be included because just, you know, and to all of our points during this discussion, it it should be included because journalists often frame the the public's opinion. And just recently... Um, speaking to what colleges are doing, the Chronicle of Higher Education put out an article this week talking about appointments because we know it would be great that we, if we could have just come back from uh, the pandemic, from COVID, well, we're still in it, but come back to uh, the academic school year and said, we're incorporating this social justice component, we're adding this, go. But we know that's not how it works. We know there's a lot of voting that takes place, and there's faculty involved, there's the administration involved, here it's the Board of Regents. Um, And and the article talked about these appointments. Um, These decision makers are often influenced by the board members and their party affiliation. So what do you think of that, given what I just said about a social justice curriculum, we all know, I think we can all agree on what should be a part of it in the topics, but if the decision makers are, are folks that are appointed based on their party affiliation, and we heard our current president say he doesn't believe in uh, right. cultural and diversity training, what does that mean? I'm, I'm not sure what it means. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I think... Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm glad you brought up about what the president said about seeing, essentially seeing the diversity initiative as being 
um, a waste of time or what have you. And I think he's speaking the, the, the views and the thoughts of many uh, white racists. I'm sorry, I've got to say it like it is. Or maybe that's too harsh a term, or maybe not. But those who see um, that there's been too much done for those who, you know, who are not white, uh, so to speak. So I mean, I, I'm not sure what to say about that other than that I, I don't think we've reached a point in this country, maybe we'll never reach a point in this country where we cannot benefit as a nation from, you know, mo- knowing more about the culture and the background and acknowledging the things that have been done that were not in the spirit of what this country was supposedly founded upon, you know, which is freedom of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, equality, fair play, honesty. None of those things were really the reality per se, although we say that's what we believe in. At least we did until, at least on paper, until the the current president. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of concerned about, I mean, you know, going back in the curriculum aspects, but to how we teach students and how we, how we basically convey the importance of honesty and integrity and truthfulness with our students. Yeah, you know, I, as I'm thinking about just um, our responsibility in higher education uh, in, in advancing our, our, our work to create less racism, less oppression, more equity. Um, I think higher ed in these particular times know they have to step up. So I'm hopeful. Um, you know, I know that I think about what Shantae, what you just said about journalism and what are learning lessons from the discipline that helps us really think about our understanding of, you know, truth, data, what's what's real news but, but based on facts and what are wh- who who are collecting the facts I, I think that we have a responsibility in higher education because we're 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 educators i mean that's we talk about freedom of expression freedom of our thoughts freedom to express to critique and yet i find in my years doing this work it's been a lot of years in higher education around diversity, equity, and inclusion, sometimes the curriculum, which is not managed by the senior leadership team, it's not managed by the regents, it's managed by faculty. And and yet, yeah. and yet, and I, again, I uh, have a lot of good colleagues here and other places, <laughs> but sometimes what seems so easy, you know, what you just said, Shantae, that N-word should never have to be lifted or said in in the context of that professor and just just irresponsibly singing a song because thought that that was a good way, sing that song with the N-word, that would bring folk together, that a professor would not understand what that would do for some students in that classroom, the impact of doing that. That in this century, that professor would not understand that says how backward we are with our curriculum and our pedagogy mm-hmm. and educating faculty around this. Right. And, I, and I'd be the first one to say that there is not a one way of training this. I'm a critical race theorist. I've done the training in that. 
I wouldn't claim that's the only way to, to manage it. A biologist, a mathematician may not get it in the same way. But we, the, in hiring faculty, we have got to do better in how we come with this culture of understanding that some things are wrong. And we, and we are, if you're going to be in my culture, if you're going to be at Southern, this is not acceptable. We're not going to hire you, period. That we have control over. We have control over that. We do. But once you get a tenured professor, you really don't. I, I mean, I remember I was here over 20 years ago. And, and it, at the time, it was called a human diversity requirement that we were advocating for. And so I know all too well that it is the faculty uh, that have that final say. And I used to always say, being a history major to my professors, you know, I don't see you out there. I'm not seeing, you know, you speaking up either way because we can agree to disagree on some things. But there's some things that I think is a non-starter. And it, it was really... Um, sobering for me and disheartening to see many of my faculty members, especially in the social sciences, being silent. And I would say to them, your silence means consent. And it, it, it really did color my view on them. And I, I feel like, you know, the college campus is a microcosm of the world. And thinking through this conversation, this discussion, it's funny, it resonated with me that the college professor um, has a similar responsibility um, as a journalist. You really do color the opinions of people's minds, you and and Frank, I, I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but <laughs> this came to mind, right? So we know okay. the media negatively um, depicts certain groups. So I'm going to say uh, blacks in particular, and specifically black women, right? Um, in a negative way, you see the media flooded with images um, of angry, promiscuous, uneducated, the baby mama, the gold digger. Yet. Black women are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs, attaining terminal degrees at a higher rate than any other group, right? But these biases are damaging. So folks might be upset with me when I say this, right, that are listening, but I kind of like to use pretty woman um, as an example because I know so many people that that's their favorite movie. And my, <laughs> my thought is if it starred Halle Berry and Denzel yeah. Washington, right, she would have just simply been a gold-digging prostitute. But because it's Julia Roberts and Richard Gere, it's a modern-day Cinderella story. So I, I think that maybe critical race theory should be used when we're talking about journalism and the media so folks can see that there are biases there. And their privilege, if you will, should be exposed. Because I can't fault you. I, I'm from Fairfield County, right? So I can't fault you if you're from the Gold Coast and you were not exposed to certain things. Sometimes I, I, I used to find it, um, uh, I don't know, um, just unbelievable. When I was here at Southern, I remember going through RA training and one of the young ladies that I had gotten to know, we were friends, she did not know that you could no longer use the word colored. This oh, well, is in the nineties. She was from well, Fairfield, you know but she was genuine and sincere in that. And we talked to her. She she learned from that moment, mm -hmm. but that also speaks to this cancel uh, climate we're in, right? Any if she did that right now, well, I really question it right now. But well, if she but, did but, it right but, now, no. I would say no. There's no way most people would cancel her this, you know, cancel culture, but you can't do that. You have to be open to the dialogue and here is where it should happen. But okay. going back to my well, initial question about critical race theory and journalism and the social justice curriculum, 
Go ahead, Frank. Sorry. But let me say this, though. I mean, it's interesting. You said a lot of things. First, I think... <laughs> I always um, do. I always do. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, think Denzel, I think Denzel and Hollywood still have that 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 thing going. I, I kind of disagree with that, but I get the principle of what you're saying. But Denzel and Hollywood, I think they would probably pull it off. I thought about that. I said, these are Academy (laughs) Award winners. So, but I just figured, who could I use as an example that would resonate with everyone? I could have said Nia Long and uh, Ice Cube, you know, and it would have been a whole different, different, different. different. I'm not going to even go with with Ice Cube versus Denzel now. Come on. (laughs) Because this is acting. But anyway, but you mentioned colored. I mean, and I'll be doggone if that word is not coming back. I'm finding more students putting it in their writing. And I'm not talking about just white students, but black students, Hispanic students. That word, I actually wrote a column about it a couple of years ago, that the words seem to be coming back in the vocabulary. Not, not just people of color, but colored. I don't know what's going on, but I've, I've seen it increasing over the last, Two or three years or so. In, in you your cl- academic courses? Like in your. In, in, in my academic. When how I do you correct work, that? How do you correct well, that, even first, if they spell first, it correctly? I, I would put a note in there saying that, you know, I, I, I write lots of comments on my, on my papers. I don't just give them a grade back. I, I tell them, you know, what needs fixing, what you need to think about, what about okay. this, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly, this may come up in my race in the news class, uh, where, where we're talking about race, but also in my freedom of expression class. And I'll just say, um, you know, you, you know, just as a as a point of reference, do know that nobody the the word colored is not uh, the the most acceptable use of that word now. You know, it it you know, and I and I, I'll ask why did you choose to use this word, and the answer that I get back. I don't know. They're baffling. They don't make any sense. But it's confusing, though. If you say I could see because I can always look at it from other folks perspectives, even if I don't agree. If you use phrasing like people of color, which is very popular now, Mm -hmm. I could see folks that don't know any better thinking colored Mm -hmm. is okay. And I have folks that will say, well, you still say uh, the NAACP, if you don't want color, uh, uh-huh. then maybe you should take it out. Now, most of the time, those are, you know, facetious comments, but I can see where it could get confusing, even for uh, black people, for example. You'll have some people that say, I prefer black versus African-American. And I even will go deeper in certain uh, conversations and, and say, um, you know, there's African American and then there's African hyphen American. I grew up in the era where, when right. we started first using these phrases, right. the hyphen meant you were associated with a landmass. So I would even sometimes, when I'm being facetious with a, a group of uh, black folks, I will say, "So, do you? We say that President Obama was our first black president. Black, yes. African American." Not necessarily. African hyphen American, yes. African American, no. And sometimes I'll get folks that look at me like I have five heads, (laughs) and I love it because that means we're about to have a really, really spirited conversation. But there's a difference. Michelle is African American, Obama. Barack is African hyphen American. So I think those conversations should be had because it's not just uh, black people um, that know this or white people that don't know it it's a dialogue for everyone and it's a generational thing as well I am old enough to know or have been alive when we went from um, 
I don't know. I think I came on the tail end of Negro, but definitely black, African-American yeah. hyphen. Oh, Afro-American and then yeah. African-American. Yes. But yeah. I still hear okay. folks say Afro-American, which, yes. as we know, Ooh. is a hairstyle. There we go. Well, I mean, one of the things that I did years ago, and this came in my, my race in the news class, it's a really interesting class because we talk about the role of race in shaping the news and the, and the role of news in shaping race. And I go back to um, the first newspapers and how newspapers um, describe black people. Now, what led me to doing my research, in which I looked at, uh, you know, the many words that names that black Americans or Americans of African descent have been known by, was looking at old newspapers. And I was able to see the evolution of words from um, Negro to African to slave to colored. Colored became around uh, around the um, late 1700s, and it really reflected the the, the rape of black women by whites and how the colors changed. So you got you didn't have colored for a while, and then colored, and then it became Negro. Negro referred to those who were dark. Colored were those who were lighter. It could be lighter brown. But it was that kind of um, distinction. And you got the N-word, which became big in the, the 1820s and 30s or so. And it became, um, you know, I won't go into the, the, too deep into this, but it became a more disparaging term instead of more than just mm -hmm. a descriptive term. Mm -hmm. If you look at the word color and Negro, at one time they were neck and neck for a brief while in, in terms of uh, which was more commonly used. And if you look at during the Civil War, they were known as colored troops, USCT, U.S. United uh -huh. States colored troops. Uh -huh. Okay, and then Negro took over, became popular, and then you know it, it's the whole evolution of names, and it's reflected in the newspapers. Now, you said something about news media um, referring not treating black people well, and historically, that certainly has been the case. Um, in, in the terms of, you know, newspapers were often responsible or, or complicit in fanning the flames of racial hate, of promoting lynchings and so forth. It would become like an advertisement for, you know, for lynchings, and they would often presume the guilt of the person who was being lynched. And you even see that some of these things happening today where, I mean, but I think to a lesser extent, uh, you have to also acknowledge that newspapers, news media were really um, helpful or it helped to uh, spur on the civil rights movement. Certainly the civil rights leaders knew the importance of having news cameras on hand when they were beating the heck out of protesters and so on um, and all of those things. So there's a, and even today, news media are reluctant I think, to follow the rest of society in use of disparaging terms like the N-word, for instance. Um, I, I did a research on what news media had a policy on using the N-word and not using the N-word. And you have to understand, historically, in this country, the N-word was regularly used in news media and by people in society, white and black, who learned it from their masters and so on. So, I mean, I, I certainly agree that the news media has a long way to go, and a lot of it has to do with representation. 
Uh, the newsrooms are still mostly white. I think uh, the Pew uh, Research done in 2018, 77% of those, uh, 76, 77% of those in the news media in newsrooms are white, non-Hispanic. 10% are mm-hmm. Hispanic and 7% are black, non-Hispanic. And that's not a lot. And it, sometimes it can be a challenge to represent those who you are not familiar with. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I created the class, because I wanted people, not just those who are going into journalism, but those who just want to know about the news media and race, to understand the history of this country Absolutely. in terms of race, but also how the news media uh, really fought some of the racial animus, as well as how it kind of in some ways addressed it. And even thinking about, and I would never equate this to the the usage of the N-word, but how BLM has taken a different negative connotation um, in a way, uh, and and I don't think it's just, uh, I think this is, you know, some would say it's partisan. It's going to be interesting in how these elections um, turn out. Yeah. But but the BLM, that, that tag, that... I've seen it at Southern and other places in this this fear of do we want to use the fist? Um, do we? How often do we want to use the fist? There are institutions that would never put a BLM banner mm-hmm. on their campus ever. Um, I gotta and, say and, it's inviting when I and this yes, is my second yes. home. I always say that. Yep. But when I just drove in today mm-hmm. on campus and mm-hmm. I saw that huge mm-hmm. banner mm-hmm. on Bewley Library, I said yes. yes. <laughs> I, I actually took a picture. I was at the light and I I took a picture and it mm-hmm. it made me feel even more as if mm-hmm. it were possible at home. It mm-hmm. really did. I don't know if folks realize as a black woman how that made me feel, which I'm sure if you survey the students, they'll say the same. Absolutely. Well, it depends upon the students. I mean, I certainly could not have imagined the popularity if that's the right word, maybe it's not the right word. But uh, how people, non-white, non-black people, have taken to this. I don't mean everybody, of course, but I could never have foreseen that. Um, you know, we have BLM when I drive to these certain neighborhoods or, um, or downtown or on campus or whatever. I mean, I, I mean, maybe I could have seen it at Southern. I mean, but. I just could not have imagined that, um, you know, that BLM could be, have touched so many many people. And I I think it's because people were touched by what they saw with uh, what happened to George Floyd. And and it really, but there have been scenes before. There have been times before we've seen images. Mm -hmm. We saw Rodney King get beat. We saw a guy in South Carolina get trapped in the back by a police officer. Somebody just happened to have a video camera and saw it. Um, but something about this touched people. But on the other hand, here's my other point that I, and I said this before in a column. Um, it's fine to take, I mean, we wouldn't know about this if we didn't have social media and video cameras. But at what point do you put the camera down and do you try to help somebody? Now, you know, my feeling is if somebody if somebody is 
hurting me, whether it's a police officer or whatever, don't just take a video of me dying. Do something. Save my black butt, you know? <laughs> don't just, you know, and and that's one of the things I say about social media. Sometimes people think that taking a video or taking a picture is enough, you know? And I, my feeling is that if somebody's doing wrong, you have to do something. If that was my, if that was your child out there being choked to death with a knee on it, I know they're police officers. I know they got guns. I know they got and whatever. I mean, you got to do something to get that person off that person's throat like that. Um, well, that's again. the thing, though. I, I'm again, I'm over here like chomping at the bit. I, I agree. And the thing is. That's important to note. They were police officer because officers because the thought is call the police. One person could record to to have that to memorialize that because it's needed later because quite frankly if we didn't have that recording of what happened to George Floyd things would have yeah, been completely absolutely. differently. But absolutely. because we had that recording and the the young lady um I, I believe there was more than one, but the one that I think is most well-known was a young woman. Um, I think she was 17 right. years old. What could she have done herself physically? And then the fact that these are multiple police officers uh, doing this, inflicting this harm on this man, it's a hard one. And that's another discussion that I yeah. would love to have. Yeah. But something I wanted to say, because I, to your point about how I felt when I said, you know, my feelings were of warmth, and I'll even go as far as to say safety when I saw the BLM uh, banner and when I see it other places. Um, that same feeling, but the opposite. If I go somewhere, um, where I don't frequent often, and I see the Confederate flag, if I see a swastika, the complete opposite feeling happens. I feel unsafe and, and, and certain, a certain level of anxiety. And there are some factions of, of people, of Americans, that will never understand what that feels like. When I pass the, the Mason-Dixon line, I, I pay attention, That's you know, right. where I yeah. am. There's some places where I feel that Southern comfort, and there's other places where I feel like they don't realize where we are in terms of the time, modern day, you know. So they don't think that Juneteenth ever happened or 1865 period, you know. So we, it's important, again, to talk about this in the classroom, yes. and that's where the social justice right. curriculum comes into play, because these are conversations that could that's be right. had in a safe space where both sides, or not even, I don't want to say sides, when everyone uh, can feel comfortable talking, because there's some groups that feel like they're not even included in this that's conversation. Right. You know, Absolutely. there's, there's, Absolutely. I don't want to start naming them, but, you know, everything is not black and white. So, that's right. And, and we're going to in a direction in this country or this society, period, that it's not black and white anymore. Yeah. So why yeah. do we keep going back to everything being just black and white? Because color, because color is still the major determining factor in this country. I mean, I was reading something with regards to uh, there's a news show, I think, or maybe it's an article I was reading about Hispanics and how many Hispanics are talking to their children of the same way that black parents are, about how to act when you're around the police. And and before the I talk. forget, I take, I take MAGA hats, those red MAGA hats, in the same way that I do the Confederate flag and the swastikas. So that's another thing that makes me uncomfortable. But... You know, the, the thing with, with, with the story about Hispanic, how Hispanic mothers and, and fathers were talking to their children, I think it was on the West Coast, 
about how to conduct themselves around the police and, and so on. But there was a distinction made. They were saying that the darker-skinned Hispanics, even in some of the same family members, were having these talks more so than the lighter skin. So I still think, although we're talking, we say why are things black and white, I know there's more than, you know, Hispanics make a tremendous portion of this country in terms of minorities, they outnumber blacks. But it's still skin that really gets the attention because it's visible. It's there, and it, and that's how it's been with the Irish. That's how it was with the Italians, and, and so on. It, it's really, I think, the skin color that draws the attention because it's there and it's noticeable. Did I shut everybody up? No, I, 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 I was thinking, you know what, we probably should end on that. Because otherwise, we're going to start a whole other discussion on some <laughs> other topic that we're going to have to save for another day. So, no, I, I appreciate, um, you know, w your contribution to this conversation as well as Diane's. And, and I just want to thank you guys for including me in it because this was really great. Yeah, yeah this was great. Thank you. Yeah, it's very, it's very, um, yeah, it's, it's good to have this conversation. I would just say one more thing, all right, then I, and then I have to actually run out of here too, but... Um, you mentioned about having conversations in the classroom and that this is the kind of conversation that we should have. It's really important, and we you touched on cancel culture. In my classes, in, you know, I believe every, but at the marketplace of ideas, that, that's what we talk about in my journalism one-on-one freedom and power class. The, the marketplace of ideas, everybody's voice and their ideas count. Even if we disagree, even if we find it may be hateful, even whatever, we should hear what people have to say. So we should be welcoming and, and letting people know, and, and I say this all the time, I want you to feel, you know, that you can express your thoughts in this classroom without someone necessarily calling you a racist and, or someone saying that you all you think about is race. Um, and, you know, and that's the only way I think that you can have these discussions is if you are receptive to hearing things that you may not want to hear, hearing things you might want to disagree with. But at the same time, and I don't even know if I like the term cancel culture, because you do have a right to disagree with someone if you don't like what they're saying or doing. So cancel culture, to me, it's really you exercising your First Amendment right to say that you don't like what somebody's position was on something, and which is a right that's granted to us by the First Amendment. So, Professor Harris and Dr. Ariza, I thank you so much for including me in this spirited conversation. It's always wonderful as an alumna to come back to Southern Connecticut State University and be able to have this type of dialogue with uh, folks that I truly admire. So, I hope that we get the opportunity to do this again. Well, I do as well. Thank you.